Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150. And I'm so excited for today's interview on the line with us. We have Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of, among many other books and publications, a book called The Emotional Lives of Animals. A leading scientist explores animal joy, sorrow, and empathy and why they matter. Mark, welcome to the show. Happy to be with you, Julie. (laughs) So uh, Mark is one of the presenters at the Sparks International Conference, which is coming up in uh, June, the end of June, the last weekend in June. That's actually being hosted here in our very own Renton, Washington. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I talked with Dr. Michael Fox, who I've had on the show before. He's also going to be presenting and, and in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking with Clive Wynn, who will also be presenting, among many other uh, brilliant and prominent minds in the field. And um, Dr. Beckoff is, uh, you, t- you know, in this book, and which is what we're going to focus on, um, which seems to be sort of one of your main focuses, is really this concept of the fact that animals have emotions, And that this is a really huge shift in the community of scientists to actually accept this fact as true. And uh, it's really been within the past 10 years, is that right, that this is kind of starting to break in? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of interest in animal emotions for, you know, decades. But I'd say it's within the last 10 to 12 years that the study of animal emotions has become legitimized and um, there's just far fewer skeptics. It's really hard to find anybody today who won't agree to the statement that dogs feel joy or grief or sorrow or resentment. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting points um, among many in the book it, in about this within the community of scientists and research scientists that as we are more widely accepting the fact that animals experience emotions, um, and so of course now what's happening is that scientists will want to study this fact and conduct research about this fact. And one of the conflicts, it seems, which you do speak to in the book a bit, um, is that, I mean, it seems to me, because I work professionally with dog training and behavior, is that so much of measuring emotion, it's as much intuitive as it is intellectual. Mm-hmm. And that's a, such a conflict in science and in research because intuition is not valued as much as data. You know, right. something that's measurable with a some sort of instrument that can be measured and reproduced when so much of really reading emotion is intuitive and natural. So it seems like sort of this conflict. Right. Well, there is no conflict, really, because the database for animal emotions, I can say especially in mammals, um, is huge now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so people who say, oh, you know, animals act as if they're joyful, as if they're laughing, as if they are feeling grief, um, are really just really cutting, uh, they're ignoring the plethora of data that exists. I mean, so... The papers on joy and tickling in rats, for example, empathy in chickens, pigs, um, and um, mice and rats, for example, have been published in first-rate peer-reviewed scientific journals such as Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, Science Magazine, Nature. And so, really, when people just say, oh, well, you know, animals act as if they're feeling this or that, or we really don't have a strong database, they're just totally wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and um, as I said, you know, the number of skeptics has really just plummeted over the last couple of years, simply because the data are finally appearing. Now, that's not to say that there weren't data before this. I mean, historically, it was really in vogue to attribute negative emotions to animals like they could get angry. Um, But when people started talking about positive emotions, such as joy and happiness, um, you know, they sort of backed off. So so the history has been a real, I like to say it's just been a very convenient um, denial of what science and, if you will, intuition knows. Mm -hmm. Why is it convenient? Well, it's convenient because people like, 
to distance themselves from animals for any number of reasons. There's a strong, um, you know, there's a strong trend in a number of religions to talk about humans and animals rather than humans and other animals. Mm-hmm. Um, people distance themselves because of the horrific things that they do or allow to be done to other animals. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to just, you know, deny or rob animals of their emotional lives and then sort of have it be, you know, a free-for-all right. <laughs> on the animals. Right. Pretend that they're not feeling what we're doing to them. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And so that's why the research that just has been published in the last couple of years on empathy in mice or mm-hmm. empathy in rats or tickling and joy in rats has been so important. And just just in the last couple of months, there's been a, a research done on fish, for example, and we know fish are sentient beings. We know they're conscious, and there's some really good evidence now that they use their heads to signal where prey is hidden. You know, mm. which is a gestural community, uh, a dress, a gesture that used to be, um, you know, it used to be thought that only great apes used gestures to communicate, say, the location of an object or um, another animal. Well, bees do it too, don't they? Yeah, I mean, the other thing is bees do it. I mean, my goodness, there's solid research now that shows that bees are highly emotional. Mm-hmm. They become depressed, um, just like humans, and they show the same neural changes as do humans when we say humans are depressed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, people think that there's that these discoveries are surprises, but as a biologist, I don't think they're surprises at all. I mean, if you pay attention to Charles Darwin's ideas about evolutionary continuity, I mean, that's a mouthful, but really all Charles Darwin was saying was that the differences among species are differences in degree rather than differences in kind, which basically means that differences are shades of gray, not black and white. Mm-hmm. And so the bumper sticker is, if we have something, they, other animals, have it too. So, in fact, to rob animals of their emotions is really bad biology. Mm-hmm. Something that you said I, that I thought was interesting was that um, sometimes it's easier to understand emotions in animals than it is in humans because animals don't filter their emotions. Right. Um, I You know, sometimes people say, well, <coughs> dogs or other animals experience, quote, joy, or quote, grief, or quote, love, and they put scare quotes, you know, around the words. And I like to say, no, humans are the ones who experience, quote, joy, quote, love, quote, grief, because animals wear their emotions, if you will, on their sleeves, on their paws, on their bodies. Right. Yeah, I mean, there is some evidence now, though, that animals do filter their emotions, and they'll conceal their emotions, but I think typically what you have is when you see an animal expressing some emotion, it's really what I like to call the raw, unfiltered type of emotion, such as joy, grief, fear, um, resentment now we know, um, envy, jealousy. Mm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. scientific work on this now. Yeah. And um, you mentioned uh, an example in your book when you were giving a, I think you were about to give a presentation and you were talking with a colleague and he was talking about his personal dog and talking about his dog like most of us would talk about our dogs and relating, you know, talking about how they feel and, you know, in human terms. And then he questioned you on the topic professionally. Um, and it was just interesting to see that um, sort of contradiction. Right. <clears throat> I named him Bill and Reno to protect the innocent, you know? Yeah. And so, right, Bill was telling me all about his dog who beat him at chess and was jealous when he gave attention to his daughter and was happy to see him and grieved when he lost, um, you know, a dog buddy, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And then I gave a talk and he said, well, aren't you just being anthropomorphic? And I said, well, would you like to tell the audience what you told me about <laughs> right. Reno? And he said, well, you know what I mean. And I went, well, no, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. And that's, see, that's the distance just about, you know, that some people want to um, uh, put in between themselves and other animals. So, so he was, in that sense, really distant 
himself because he just, frankly, happened to be someone who did some horrific work on dogs. Mm. So I said, well, would you do it, that research on, on Reno? And he went, I mean, there was a hesitation. And he said, no. And I said, then why do you do it on the dogs in your lab? And, you know, he came up with all the right answers. Well, you know, they were going to be put to sleep at a pound or way they, you know, we could, you know, use them because, you know, ultimately we're going to put them to sleep. But but the fact of the matter is those dogs don't suffer any less than does Reno. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There's a lot of interesting um, work on the the study of the brain and the centers of the brain and actually seeing where these different centers light up uh, as they correlate with an experience of certain emotions. And uh, it's interesting to see the similarities between people and all of these other animals and that that is part of the sort of the proof of that we really can relate to them in that way. Now, you mentioned the word anthropomorphism, and that's definitely... Um, uh, a doozy of a word in the industry um, I know in my field and I think in general we're mm-hmm. going to take a quick break and then I want to get more into that idea um, anthropomorphism which is the attribution of human characteristics to non-human animals uh, we're going to be back in just a few minutes you're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk AM The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Designing Health, makers of Missing Link, we cover the world of animals. This week, August 16th, it's a best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen. We'll have open phone lines, and Dr. Nels can help with emotional, behavioral, physical problems. He can test for allergies, drug, or supplement compatibility and dosages for you or your animal friends. Call us for a free remote session. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. Clear, clean, and crisp. Check us out in digital quality sound on FM 98.9 HD3. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we are back talking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals and one of the presenters in the Sparks International Conference, which is coming up at the end of June here in Redmond, Washington, just in our back door of Seattle. And uh, we're so lucky to have this happening locally because there are people coming from all over the world to attend this conference. Mark, welcome back to the show. And you, uh, this book is amazing. I highly, highly recommend this book for those of you who like to read books about dogs and animals in general. It's called The Emotional Lives of Animals. And it's by Dr. Mark Beckoff, B-E-K-O-F-F. And if you'd like to find more information about the Sparks Conference and attend it, uh, highly recommend. This is a once-in-a-lifetime, as far as I'm concerned, at least so far, opportunity. You can find information online at caninescience.info for more information on the other presenters and how to register. It's at the end of June this year. So you mentioned the word anthropomorphism. Uh, which flies around all over the place, um, more so in the past, um, in the field of, you know, my field, dog training and behavior, but I think in animals, working with animals in general. And it means to attribute human characteristics to non-human animals. And it's, like you've said, it's actually becoming more, it's not shunned the way that it, it was always said, don't anthropomorphize don't anthropomorphize. And now it's like, well, there's actually quite a bit of value in relating 
to an animal and sort of describing or almost translating, um, as long as you're keeping, as long as you're maintaining the animal's point of view and clearly not projecting your own emotions onto the animal. So that's where the distinction is right. for me. Right. Um, I mean, anthropomorphism is basically the attribution of human characteristics or traits to non-human entities. And, you know, another example would be people talk about angry thunderstorms or angry mm-hmm. uh, tornadoes. Uh, I mean, the deal for me with anthropomorphism, I call it one of the A-words, is that it's been used, or the critics have been duplicitous about it, because um, an example that I've written about, and there's others, is if I say, for example, that an elephant in a zoo isn't happy, the critic will say, oh, you're being anthropomorphic. She is happy. And then it gets really quiet. And the reason it gets quiet is (laughs) simply because to say that an animal is happy is to be anthropomorphic. And so my take on it is that, once again, if you ascribe to solid biological and evolutionary theory, especially, once again, Charles Darwin's ideas on continuity, then when we talk about a dog being happy or a dog grieving, we're not inserting something human into them. Mm-hmm. We're discussing their own emotional lives. And once again, you know, people have written volumes about anthropomorphism, but the fact of the matter is we have no alternatives. And I put forth an idea that we need to be biocentrically anthropomorphic. And what that $10 phrase really means is that we need to take into account the lives of the animals. So the question isn't, do dogs feel emotions? It's why do they feel emotions? Do killer whales, polar bears, elephants, chimpanzees, and other animals feel emotions? The question is really, why have emotions evolved? Would you say it's accurate to say that the term anthropomorphism is coming from the assumption that humans are the only animals that actually experience emotions in the first place? Yeah, I mean, historically, you know, you know, that's basically how it was, you know, used. It was, yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way, and I, and I think that's a really good way to think about it, is that we're attributing something human to non-human animals, um, and they really don't have it. Yeah, and I think it does, it does, so acknowledging that animals do experience emotion, it also, too, I mean, I hear people all the time sort of misdiagnose their dog's behavior and say, oh, well, you know, she's doing this to get back at me or, you know, sort of it's like, well, no, I can see how it would feel that way to you. But actually, an understanding from the dog's perspective, these are actually the reasons why this behavior, you know, why the dog is expressing this behavior. So I think it does happen. It's not like, oh, it's just a free for all now and we can start you know, relating to our dogs as if they're people, but really knowing where that line is. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, we can be, you know, some people say, well, look, you know, so-and-so was wrong about this, or you were wrong about this. And, you know, there's a a number of, you know, comebacks. One is just because you're wrong some of the time doesn't mean you're wrong all the time. But people also misread the literature. So here's a really good example that centers on dogs. Alexandra Horowitz, who will be at the meeting in mm-hmm. Seattle, yeah. did a study, and she discovered that humans were not very good at reading guilt in dogs. Okay, they would think the dogs were behaving guilty when in fact they weren't, or they, they, would, they would say, oh, the dog is behaving guilty because they did something and they didn't. But Alex did not say that dogs can't feel guilt. She just said, we're not good at reading it. And that is a huge difference um, in, you know, conclusion. Mm. And so, I mean, Alex is a good friend of mine, and I've talked to her a lot about it, and I wrote an article for Psychology Today about it because a very popular book came out a couple of months ago and basically said that Alex Horowitz discovered that dogs don't feel guilt. So I'm not sort of beating it to death. I'm basically saying that, yeah, you have to be careful. But I would have to say that, you know, 
the vast majority of the time when you watch two dogs play, they're enjoying themselves, and when it gets to the point where they're not, one dog may break it off or refuse the play solicitation from another dog. Yeah. But I think it just is absolutely stupid to say that we don't know whether the dogs are enjoying themselves. And <laughs> once again, we've got the same thing with tickling and joy in rats. I mean, yeah. these studies were highly invasive, and I, they're not mm. the kind of studies that I support, but they were done. So if we look at the results, once again published in really highly prized peer-reviewed professional journals, we see that rats are mammals. Mm-hmm. They have the same neural architecture that we have for emotions. So once again, I think it's just robbing animals of their emotions and pondering you know, whether they feel this or that, is, it's just a waste of time. I, I really, really mean it. Once again, the question is, is, why would joy evolve? Why would grief evolve? Why would jealousy, resentment, embarrassment, and empathy evolve? Not if they have evolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, it does seem to be that there's, personally, I've heard of some studies that have been done, and it's like, why do you have to study this? To know that it's true. It's like you're you're studying what's obvious to pretty much everybody, I think, who's out there. We just proved it, you know. Right. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist and I love science, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's, I always say it's not the only show in town, but I think you can't just look and, you know, pick certain things like you pick potato chips out of a bag because they support your theory. I mean, the research done on empathy in mice that was published about seven years ago was horrifically abusive. Yeah, It was done by neuroscientists at McGill University and published in Science Magazine. Well, people could say, well, you know mice, we know mice, uh, you know, we knew mice, um, you know, display empathy. Well, we didn't quote know it in the scientific sense, but now we do. And same, like I said, with rats and pigs and, you know, many other animals. So we don't need to study it anymore. And the fact is, now that we know that they display empathy and now that we know they're sentient and they feel pain, this should really be driving us to radically changing and improving our standards of conduct for research. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the you know, why it was probably resisted, because it really does challenge a lot of the structures that are in place in in research, you know, that does involve animals and the welfare of the animals that are, that have not signed up to participate. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I mean, one of the researchers in the mouse study, um, I'm sure it was mediated by perhaps olfactory or odor cues, but also visual cues. So he had the audacity to say, well, now that we know that empathy, you know, that mice feel empathy and may be mediated by visual cues, when we do these experiments, we have to separate the mice by opaque barriers. Mm. So there, I mean, there you go, Joyce. I mean, you know, we discover something, we should be using it on behalf of the animals. And here, one of the researchers is basically saying, well, now that we know this, and if we want to continue to abuse the mice, we better make sure they can't see one another. Right. That's pretty lame. I mean, that's yeah. really yeah. lame. Yeah, I agree. Um, so there's a, so much in this book. Again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking with Dr. Mark Beckhoff, who's the uh, author of The Emotional Lives of Animals, among many other publications. Excellent book. It's loaded with all sorts of very, very interesting information about his work, his research, and the research of others, and also a lot of really very, very thought-provoking ideas um, and just a a lot to really ponder. Um, What I would like to talk about in the next segment, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back, and I'd like to talk about play because this is a, there is a lot that goes on in play that I know in the world of dogs, it's not valued um, and understood to the depth of really what's there. And it's a very, very powerful thing um, that people, it's very underutilized in the relationship with people and their dogs. And I think it's great to highlight this and, and the power of play and everything that's going on with play and how it also brings up the questions of morality. So 
We're going to be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Hey, dog show fans. Does something stink in your home or car? Pure Air is a powerful odor eliminator that is the only natural food-grade product in its category. It works on bedding, kennels, litter boxes, urine, vomit, poop, even skunk spray. You know, all the fun smells our pets bring into our home. It's so non-toxic that you can literally eat it, a requirement for our home and our dogs. Spray Pure Air on anything you can put water on and let your nose watch the odor disappear. Ask for Pure Air in stores that specialize in natural, non-toxic products for home. Or visit DogRadioShow.com for a link to their website. I'm Julie Forbes, your host of The Dog Show. Pure Air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dog, thoughtful guidance for you and your dog. If your dog needs basic obedience training, a behavior evaluation, or food consultation, I can help you. Call me at 206-372-7399 or visit my website, www.sensitivedog.com. I teach group obedience classes, in-home lessons, and evaluations, and a two-week intensive training program called Higher Education. Again, I'm Julie Forbes, Seattle's dog behavior training and nutrition specialist, www.sensitivedog.com. Made fresh each day for you. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. And we're back talking with Mark Beckhoff, who's the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals and one of the presenters at the Sparks International Conference on Canine Science, which is happening at the end of June this year uh, in Redmond, Washington. So if you're local, lucky you. And if you're not local, you can still come. There's people coming from all over the world. You can find out more about this um, at caninescience.info. And I have links to this on our website as well, which is dogradioshow.com. And I'll put links to um, Dr. Beckhoff's work as well. So welcome back to the show. And we were talking about um, anthropomorphism in the last segment. And we've just generally been talking about emotions in animals and, of course, specifically with dogs, um, but really animals in general. And you spend... um, quite a bit of time in your book talking about play Mm -hmm. and the importance of play for animals. And I mean, you go into all sorts of depth about this. It's really, really interesting to think about all of the things that it brings up and all of the things in your years of study specifically about play, what you've seen. Um, uh, One of the things you identified was, or you said researchers have identified a trust center in human brains called the caudate nucleus mm-hmm. and uh, activity is greatest when generosity is repaid with generosity you talk a lot about um trust and re- reciprocity reciprocating and how all of this is br- brought out in play mm-hmm. um now you also brought out a, you talked about the importance of puppies and how it's important or for um well puppies yeah specifically to learn to play with other puppies because they learn bite inhibition. And bite inhibition is something that I hear is a term that I hear thrown out all over the place. And sometimes it's misused. Will you talk a little bit about what you know bite inhibition is and when it's learned and what it means? 
Well, yeah, I mean, Biden's inhibition would, um, when we talk about play, for example, um, we talk about a, a number of different um, behavioral tactics or strategies, and one is called self-handicapping. So it would be, I don't bite you as hard as I can, I don't swat at you, I don't hip-slam you as hard as I can when I'm playing, and bite inhibition would be under that category. It basically means that an animal doesn't bite another animal as hard as they can, and it's just incredibly obvious during play that animals learn how hard they can bite or how hard they can um, hip-slam into another animal or push them without having the playful interaction either escalate into something that could resemble fighting or have it just end because one of the animals, you know, gets afraid. Right. And so, you know, once again, when you look at the way play develops in certain animals, you'll see that it becomes calmer. It becomes, if you will, less... I mean, it can be rough and tumble, Mm -hmm. but there's a fewer transgressions, if you will, of right. the agreement to play. Right. And so, once again, you know, the other example I can think of, and I know that you and many of your listeners um, have experienced this, I mean, when I have rescued dogs from the um, local Humane Society and or I'm interacting with dogs who I don't know, you can see that there's some learning going on as to how hard they can say mouth my arm or my hands or my legs mm-hmm. um, and still have it be play. Right. And it's really fast. I mean, I've studied this in wild coyotes, and I'll tell you, they learn really fast the rules of the game. Yeah. And bite inhibition is definitely one of the rules. Yeah. I think dogs in general learn really fast, and they're not given enough credit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing. The learning, the acquisition is the easy part. It's all the other dynamic part that seems to be more challenging. Yes. Um, You said something that I loved. You said animals love to play because play is fun. And fun in its very own, is its very own powerful reward. And what I I remembered, um, the many, many, many times I've had people sort of uh, complain to me or express to me that, their dog is, you know, great at coming to them, but they cannot get their dog to come to them when the dog is engaged in play with another dog. Right. And it's like, well, that speaks to the value. It's like, oh, the dog is like, this is the best, and I do not want to leave this. Right. I always say that when animal, the, the animals are the play, <laughs> the dogs are the play, Yeah. Um, they're so immersed in it. And in classical ethology, one of um, the behavioral measures of intensity when, you know, someone says, well, that dog is really intense, it's intensely playing, or the wolf is intensely hunting, is the ease of interruption. Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah, I mean, all the dogs I know and have lived with and watched play, you know, thousands of hours, when they're really into the play, it's really hard to get them to stop. It's not. Be- it's not that they're you know, trying to, you know, play one-upsmanship with you, it's they are really into the play. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. think of humans. I mean, you know, when when humans are playing, it's really hard to distract their attention. They get injured while playing, but yet they can they continue playing until they stop and they go, oh my, I'm bleeding, or oh my, right. I twisted an ankle or something. Right. Yeah. Um, and something that you talked about specifically was the play bow. Mm-hmm. And I know for dogs, it's... Um, it's the the one of the best examples of them saying, "Hey, you know, inviting to play." You talk a lot about how one of the things about play that's so important is that it's mutual. So you, one one dog does not play with another dog who's not playing back. It it's like it it does. They might try, but it, that's not considered really play. It's really mutual, and that's part of the beauty the beauty of it. Right. And something for people to get, I think, that's important is that standing out and throwing a ball back and forth and having your dog run and get the ball and bring it back and run and get the ball and bring it back and run and get the ball and bring it back isn't playing with your dog. That's throwing a ball for your dog and tapping into whatever drive that is for the dog as an individual. But that pl- I oftentimes have people do a play bow as a human to do the play bow to the dog because I've done it a ton of times and it's so fun when the dogs are like oh it's on let's go 
and to see them respond with a play bow back and then to just kind of mess with them on the floor. So fun. Right. I mean, chasing a ball is object play. Playing with another dog or a human or another animal is social play. Right. And it's during social play when a lot of the rules of engagement um, are learned. And so you're right. Play is voluntary. It's mutual. It's cooperative. They negotiate how they're going to play, and different rules may apply to different pairs of animals. And one animal has the right to quit, and that's really what really differentiates play from other um, uh, categories of behavior. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's funny. I'm writing a review article on play in dogs right now for a book, and it's just amazing how much we how much we know. And frankly, I was thinking, my God, I've been studying play in animals for four decades, and I'm still learning about it. I know. It's humbling, isn't it? (laughs) It's fun, but it's also serious business. And play is a great um, meeting room, if you will, for trying to understand how dogs and other animals acquire social skills, become socialized, become card-carrying dogs or coyotes or wolves, for example. Yeah. You say that play is is a clear window into the moral lives of animals. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, once again, when you do these detailed analyses of play, you learn that there are rules of social engagement. There's right and wrong, and there's fairness, and that's what you know begins to generate discussions about morality. That these animals learn what's right and wrong, and there is a moral code. That applies if I want to play with you. I can't bite you too hard. I can't hit you too hard. Um, I can't invite you to play and then beat you up. And one of the things we've learned in uh, wild coyotes is that animals in a group become labeled as cheaters and they are avoided or their play signals are ignored. And it has some major consequences for Mm. um their subsequent development. And, you know, once again, I've seen this at dog parks, and I've had people talk to me about it, you know, basically saying, well, you know, Fido over there doesn't play fair, and no, no, and the animals don't want to play with him mm-hmm. or her. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. The, um, the, that, that was a question that I thought of as I was reading that about play, and then you answered it in speaking to, I had a question, um, do, have you ever seen in your research, an animal trick another animal by showing a play bow and then attacking instead of playing. And it sounds like it really, really rarely ever happens and that there are some pretty severe social consequences when it does. Yeah, we studied this, actually, because I've heard, have had people say to me, and maybe you have too, say, God, whenever I go to the dog park and my dog starts playing or I watch other dogs, it always winds up as a fight. Well, it happens between about 2 to 4% of the time. Mm-hmm. But the reason people think it happens more is it really grabs your attention. Right. Yeah. And there's other factors, too, like at dog parks, a dog might be overstimulated and therefore not able to regulate themselves. You know, there's, I think, other oh. factors there, too. Ab- oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but, you know, even in wild animals, you know, you'll see play maybe a little ma- minor spat, but... The consequences of it has nothing to do with dominance or leadership. It's just, you know, it's just sometimes they lose themselves in play because they get so wired. Yep. Yeah, right. And it's a great way for animals also learn to control their energy when they do get aroused and excited to kind of maintain maintain control of themselves so that they don't go overboard and hurt their mate who they're playing with. Absolutely, and there's some fascinating research on monkeys, and I don't think there's, it's never been done on dogs or any of the members of the dog family that shows that um, mother vervet monkeys, for example, when there's limited food and energy, they will actually interfere with the play of the youngsters so that the youngsters can put their energy into growth and maintenance. But when there's plenty of food, the mothers are pretty laissez-faire and let the animals play. Mm. And so, once again, you know, the reason dogs are such card-carrying players is because they're fed, they get health care, they get a good home, they get a bed. Plenty of time to play. There's plenty of time to play. And, of course, play is a good marker for not feeling well. And, you know, street dogs, feral dogs, um, don't play as much. And if you have a dog who's a player 
and he or she stops playing, the first thing that we really think about is they're not feeling well. Right. So play drops out really fast. So yeah. It's a, it's a good um, litmus test for yeah. um, how they're feeling. Yeah. Um, with the monkeys, back to that, didn't I remember reading that um, also as that the that the younger or baby monkeys uh, figured out how to adjust themselves to avoid the play being stopped? Weren't they giving certain signals or something that would avoid the, the their play being interrupted by the mother? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, once again, um, that you know, that's where it gets really complex. It's yeah. you know, it, there's a there's a lot of communication going on, and that's yeah. why during um, you know our studies of play, you know, we do frame by frame analyses of video, mm. and it can take you know a week to analyze twenty minutes of play. But but the reason you have to do that is simply because. The animals are doing it, and if you really want to get a good handle on what they're doing, you've got to kind of just slow it down and watch what's happening. Yeah, because it all happens so fast. Happens really fast. Yeah. Well, we're going to take uh, one last break, and when we come back, I want to talk about um, one of the other things that you talk about that I thought was so interesting and valuable about this idea of survival of the fittest and uh a shift from the um, focus on competition and more on cooperation. So we'll uh, speak to that when we come back. We're, talk to, we're talking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals, one of the presenters at the upcoming Sparks Conference on Canine Science here in Redmond, Washington. CanineScience.info is the website. Check it out, and I hope to see you there. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Kings people play. Wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet? Wish you were welcomed by a team who cared? Jet City Animal Clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing. Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at jetcityanimalclinic.com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice, JetCityAnimalClinic.com. Next week on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Keep it simple, find the joy, and get back to playing with your kids and grandkids. Early childhood educator Ann Gadzikowski joins Vicki to say it's good to create a beautiful mess with your children and grandchildren. She'll share how to foster a balanced childhood with plenty of running, building, creating, cuddling, tinkering, and pretending. Join us every Monday at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Pure Air's powerful formula lets you eliminate pet odors safely. It's strong enough to effectively get rid of smells like urine, plus stronger odors like those that can be caused by illness. Pure Air is safe enough to spray directly onto people, animals, or use in the bath or laundry. Pure Air is perfect for dealing with dire situations, refreshing your dog between baths, or just before company comes. Pure Air is the most effective product you can buy to remove stinky pet odors safely. Find it at stores like Mud Bay, McClendon's, and Natural Pet Pantry, or visit their website, pureair.com. That's pure, A-Y-R-E, Com. I'm Julie Forbes, host of The Dog Show. Pure Air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. Good news, Belgium. We're streamed worldwide at 1150kknw.com. Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. 
Eric just threw me a bone and played a little Whitney Houston for me. Thank you, Eric. Well, it's part of that play thing, you know? <laughs> Thank <fun>. you. Reciprocity, <laughs> huh? That's right. <laughs> Being very generous, he was. <laughs> uh, we're talking with Dr. Mark Beckoff, who's the author of The Emotional Lives of Animals. If you'd like to find out more about Dr. Beckoff's work, you can find him on his website, which is Mark, M-A-R-C, Beckoff, B-E-K-O-F-F dot com. And I will post a link to that on our website, which is dogradioshow.com. And if you've missed any part of this interview or any of our over 220 episodes, they are all archived on iTunes as a free podcast and also on our website, dogradioshow.com. This book is such a great book, The Emotional Lives of Animals. One of the things I love the most about this show is that I get to talk to people like Dr. Mark Beckoff. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, now, we, we've talked about play. We talked about anthropomorphism. And you made a really, I think, important point about this idea of survival of the fittest, which I think most people are familiar with, and how it's always been used to refer to the most successful competitor. But in fact, cooperation may be of equal or even more importance. And you talk, you speak to this and how this is even, you know, the, how this has been studied and considered. And really this notion of it's not about uh, you know, all of this like sort of ruthless competition and, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to, and so that I can gain for myself, but really the importance of cooperation with animals who are social, you know, in nature. Right. I mean, <clears throat> a lot of people interpreted ideas about survival of the fittest and competition as being, you know, the major forces in the evolution of social behavior. But in fact, Darwin and others have really noted that cooperation is equally, if not more important, in the evolution of social behavior. So cooperation, for example, didn't just evolve as a sideshow to mitigate um, competition. Yeah, it's in seemed... fact, Go ahead. there's some compelling data now that show that the real natural behaviors are those involved in compa um, kindness, cooperation, compassion, and empathy, and they are the rule uh, rather than the exception. Um, the anthropologist named Robert Sussman at Washington University in St. Louis, who with some colleagues compiled a lot of data and showed for primates across the board, and we're discovering the same thing in other animals, more than 90% of their behavior 95% in gorillas, for example, is what we call pro-social or positive behavior. Mm. So um, that's a paradigm shift. Mm. I mean, that it's really changing the way people look not only at non-human animals, but human animals, because there's an equal amount of really compelling research now showing that, that humans are much kinder and beneficent and cooperative than they've ever been um, given credit for, and this crosses culture. Yeah. Um, it's good to hear that. I There was a show, just as a side note, a show about, uh, oh, I don't remember what it was called, but it was something It was something like The History of Us. I was like, ooh, this looks, this looks interesting, The History oh. of Humanity. And it was war after war after war after war. And I didn't watch it for very long because I was like, this is depressing. Is this really all we, this is our history, like the wars that we fought? Like, oh, we're, we can be so violent. Well, blood sells. I mean, you yeah. know, let's face it. You don't read in the newspaper about all the kind acts that animals perform for one another and for humans. Right. Um, in news shows or magazines, they're usually tagged on in the last two seconds or the last paragraph. Right. But you do read about the one dog that might have done something bad or the one wolf. And yeah. no, I'm serious. This is a battle that I've been, if you will, fighting for decades, mm. and that is the way in which animals are misrepresented in mass media. You know, right. a, a mass killer behaving like an animal. Mm. Well, the number of times animals do those sorts of things is very, very few and far between. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think you're... 
Something that's interesting about cooperation as it speaks specifically to dogs is that dogs really exist as a result of the cooperation between humans Mm -hmm. and dogs. I mean, and I tell my clients that, you know, dogs and people have been evolving together for tens of thousands of years and the nature of the relationship has been working together. And now we have dogs that have nothing to do, nothing to work for, and it drives a lot of them crazy. Oh, right. I mean, I always say, you know, I mean, people say it about Border Collies and, you know, some breeds like that, that, you know, they need a job. No, most dogs need a job. They do. They need to be stimulated. Yes. And they need to have enriched lives. They need to be challenged. There's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with having a dog work for a meal, you know. um, It's not torture. (laughs) No, and it's not just that they want to be challenged. They want to be engaged intellectually in a way that has some depth. And often what that looks like is really is, you know, uh, fundamentally challenging them to figure something out or but it's not this like they, um, you know, and I know this is not what you were saying, but just to clarify for listeners, it's not that they need to be challenged like dominance. It's like they need they want to be engaged, like be with me, be present to me, because we are so off in space in our own heads with, you know, the technology, uh, technological advances and our phones and you know, how, how often are we entirely present and in our bodies to anything anymore? Oh, right. No, I meant challenging in the positive way. Right. Sure. And, and no, I got no, that. No. Yep. I, yeah. Yep. I, I'm glad you, yes. you said that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's so fun. I mean, because they are so smart and so sensitive. Mm-hmm. And it's really fun to see people really light up when they get that the dogs are capable of that. Yep. So a lot of people just don't even think the dogs can think that way. Which blows my mind. I know. <laughs> you know, you, you think, well, if you don't think dogs are smart, you don't think they're emotional, you know, why don't you just go get one of those pet rocks? Right. No, I mean, sometimes when I listen to people who live with dogs talk about the dogs, I always say, boy, I'm glad I'm not your dog. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm sure they don't mistreat them, but boy, right. you're right. They don't give them credit for yeah. it can who be, they are. Yeah, it can be staggering sometimes yeah. to hear what what people say and just how they relate and it's like oh my gosh there's so much potential here that's just being ignored and, right, and that, i mean that's something that it's not a gratuitous plug but that's something that's great about the f- upcoming meeting in redmond mm-hmm. is that a lot of popular dog books are just myths yeah i mean they i've I've read some, and I've been asked to review some, and sure, they, they're good New York Times bestsellers, mm-hmm. but my goodness, they are just filled with myths about dogs, and I always say we don't need to embellish dogs yes. in order to see them as the fascinating beings right. who they are, Yeah. but it really angers me. It actually does when people sit down and write books about dog behavior and ignore really who they are by, you know, you know, you know, trying to say that they're, you know, Einsteinian geniuses, they never make a mistake, they're right. always happy, right. you know, X, Y, and Z. No, no, yeah. let's give them credit for who they are, and then we will really come to appreciate them more. And, and once again, that all has practical consequences in terms of dog training. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, time certainly does fly, especially oh <laughs> especially with uh, with this type of conversation. And I just so appreciate your time today and the book. It's amazing. It's called The Emotional Lives of Animals. Check it out. Website is markbeckoff.com. And be sure to find out more about how you can see him and others in person, caninescience.info. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk AM 1150.